Welcome to episode 56 uh, of The Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimminton, with me, The Professor, uh, Peter Van Onselen, uh, Network Political Editor for the 10 Network, among many other credentials. Peter, as we speak, hello to you, but as we speak, uh, there are smoke clouds over cities in the United States. More than a dozen uh, American cities are under curfew. Um, hell has broken loose, I think you'd say. Oh, look, it, it is so harrowing to watch and not easy to distill uh, the the elements to it and, and where the, the wrong is because, you know, obviously looting is wrong, but the protests, if you've seen that video uh, of what happened to that fellow, oh, my God, it's just brutal. I, I made the mistake, which is what I now call it, uh, of wanting to word myself up on it exactly. And I watched the full video, which I would strongly discourage anyone from doing uh, the, you know, not just the bits of it that had played out on, on various broadcasts, but the full video, you know, just shy of 10 minutes. Uh, it, it, it is so bad Hugh, because of what it depicts and the callousness uh, and the police preventing bystanders from rendering assistance who are pleading with them uh, and he's unconscious and it continues. And as we now know, he's probably passed away at that moment while it's still happening. And then his lifeless body is taken away on a stretcher. I mean, I, I, I can't unwatch it. Uh, mm. And when I watched it, it really left me, uh, I don't know if this is the right way to put it, but it left me a lot more sympathetic um, to the anger, the boiled over anger uh, on the streets in the United States than I was before that. Like before that, I understood the general anger, particularly about, you know, um, police treatment uh, of, of, of blacks in particular. Uh, but uh, watching that video uh, in full, it's very hard not to want to take to the streets, quite frankly, and I don't mean violently, but to really want to, to protest, you know, and, and then of course things get out of hand uh, with the interaction, the action, the reaction, uh, you know, all around America now. And, and I think one of the things about it is the um, complete indifference of the other police officers at the scene. Uh, oh. the, the fact that their body language is, is, is completely slack. Uh, it, there's no tension. There's no evidence in what they're doing that there might be uh, something that warranted the, their concern or their intervention at a time that a man is dying under the knee of one of their colleagues. And as you say, while people, uh, this is one of the, the things about America, where you see people, um, citizens, uh, and given that this is a society that supposedly puts the individual citizen at the center of the political process, um, citizens saying to the police officer, for heaven's sake, come on, for heaven's sake, you know, stop it. What are you doing? He doesn't need, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and it is that utter indifference to the clear potential for a terrible error to be made there by that officer. Um, I think the indifference disturbs me as much as anything else. Well, to me, it was extraordinary because, um, you know, the courts will do their job and hopefully they do do their job. Um, but watching the full video, it made more sense to me why he's also had a murder charge, not just a manslaughter charge. Because watching the full video, you could see the reason why intent came into it, not just negligence uh, in relation to a manslaughter 
charge I, I, that the full video I, I got that instantly um, upon watching it so that yeah and that the, the indifference was extraordinary but also just the callousness I felt like I was watching a medieval uh, a, a medieval scene with the way that it, it played out well speaking of medieval scenes we're seeing essentially like a Viking raid now sort of looting and pillaging going through the cities uh, it is it has gone there are so many elements to this, um, and, and we can try and unpick a, a few of them. We'll certainly get to the uh, attacks on the media that have happened, uh, the attacks on people filming from their porches um, by the police. But uh, the looting is interesting because in the middle of the looting, when people are raiding Target stores and other things and cutting off all kinds of homewares and so on, someone yells out, you are winning the election for Donald Trump. And uh, there is that other element of it, that the anger that boils over this huge superating wound that seems to be at the heart of America that deals with race and class, that seems to be exposed so easily um, in, the, in the case this time of the death of the, of the man at the, at the knee of the police officer. But that when that happens, and there is, for all the injustices of that, the scenes of mass looting reinforce in those who support Trump that it is only Trump, as they perceive it, that stands between uh, them and forces of destruction and chaos. So into the mix of that is police violence, a complete inadequacy of leadership, but also on the other side, this readiness for destruction that seems to lie in the heart of America at the moment. Yeah, and it's, it's depressing. You, you feel like you're watching... Uh, the unraveling of a superpower. Uh, I, I don't want to overstate that because, you know, America had some pretty tumultuous times in the 60s and 70s around the Vietnam War and certainly around race as well, obviously, at that point in time as well. And it, it, it bounced back uh, before suffering, you know, other blows from time to time. So there is a resilience to the United States, which is forged in its unusual history uh, as a democracy and predicated on principles uh, of rights and freedoms. And it, it ebbs and flows. Violence has been um, a pretty key cornerstone to that process, you know, the, the bad that goes with the good. But I have to say, in the, in the context of some of the international elements at the moment, you know, with the rise of China and the threat of China as well, uh, with the way, with Donald Trump, with the handling of the pandemic, uh, with the economic woes that are you know, so powerful, you know, worst since, if not potentially, we'll see where it goes before the Great Depression. Uh, it does feel like it's a superpower on its knees, let's put it that way. And, uh, and one of these about it, because if you look again to the other issue which is going on globally at the moment is China's essential uh, use through its own legal processes of, of, of now having a legal means to totally suppress uh, any pro-democracy, any human rights protests that are going on in Hong Kong. And the Chinese can point to the protests that will come and uh, the repressing of those protests and say, well, you know, this is, you know, who you'd, who you'd point a finger at us. So that one of the great things that the United States had and had for generations was this notion that it was uh, morally exceptional, that it, mm. it stood as the beacon of freedom, the leader of the free world, that it had something special that others didn't have and that other countries sought to aspire to, which was this notion that it put freedom first. And yet when you look at the scenes in the streets of Minneapolis and you look at the streets scenes in the streets of Hong Kong, and we've now achieved an equivalence. There is no 
there is no higher moral ground that the United States uh, can present to the world compared with what China, a, a, an autocratic communist state and repressive state, is offering up. On the face of it, just looking at the pictures of it, uh, th there, is no, there is no higher level that the United States can apparently claim for itself. Now, I, I, I agree that you get underneath, you get legal you know, the laws are totally different. There's a totally different set of structures underneath. I'm looking simply at the optics of it. And the Chinese will use the optics of it to say, don't lecture us, buddy. Oh, yeah. I, and I agree with that. I, I think certainly it gives China uh, the opportunity to cry foul and cry hypocrisy at the United States for any lecturing that it provides about the way that it quashes dissent and, and protests and so forth. I don't entirely agree, though, that there is an equivalence there. Uh, let me you know, agree to disagree on this. I, I uh, the the you like for example the if the protesters in Hong Kong were doing what the protesters in the United States are doing because they don't they they are going much further in the United States um, for whatever reason and I don't say that as with judgment in any direction but I do think that they are going harder uh, would be the way to put it. Now, the, the US is using rubber bullets. I'm not sure that China would be using rubber bullets if its protesters in Hong Kong were going quite as hard as the protesters uh, in Minneapolis et al. have gone in the United States. So yeah, I'm certainly not defending what's happening, but I, just, I, I, think, I think it's a little bit of false equivalence in the sense that China, I, I, I do think, clamps down harder, even though the actions by... The, the forces, the law forces in the US have been startling to me. You know, you, you're used to some bad eggs every now and again, but then it seems it's just been extraordinary. You've mentioned some of this here already, you know, with the, the, the rubber bullets being fired directly at the media. And then the, the I'm just going to say this, beep it out if you need to, the bullshit argument that they didn't know they were media actually putting out statements saying, oh, I was misunderstanding when we arrested them or when we fired at them. Well, hang on a second. What, what was confusing about the camera on the guy's shoulder, as well as all the name tags and everything that were being brandished as well? What a load of garbage, you know? Like well, that, there's no, that, yeah, that's there's no doubt about that. Me. There's no doubt about that. The, the arrest that was made of the CNN crew oh. uh, in Minneapolis was, was quite clearly they were identifiable as who they were. Another former colleague of mine, Ali Velshi, was arrested during the course of a protest where he walked up. The protest had been a march. It had been peaceful, he said. Uh, the police went in there to sort of split the crowd and, uh, and then started firing projectiles into the crowd. He went up and said, we're media. Uh, he says, the police said, we don't care, and then opened fire on Ali Velshi's... What do, you, what do you think drives that, Hugh? Is that, is that ignorance or no, well, is I'll it I'll flagrant? Well, one of the things about having worked for an American organization, CNN, uh, overseas, mm. one of the things which is really striking when you're part of that envelope, if you like, is in fact the power of the First Amendment. That, that if you report... Um, however you go, if, even when you find out, look at, for example, the Abu Ghraib uh, pictures that emerged, Seymour Hersh brought them out of the, um, of the humiliation of prisoners by American guards in Abu Ghraib prison after the invasion in, in 2003. Now, 
uh, no one was suggesting that he couldn't report that because the First Amendment right to that information, even though it was damaging to the American war effort, the argument goes that, well, this happened. We have a right to report it. The First Amendment gives us that right. If it's damaging, that's on you to make sure it doesn't happen again and to, and to bring these people to account. The power of the First Amendment, the rights of free speech and the rights of a free press lie at the heart of the American Constitution. It's not called the First Amendment for nothing. And mm. yet, I will quote you from Donald Trump's tweet in the last 24 hours, much more disinformation coming out of CNN, MSDNC, New York Times and Washington Post by far than coming out of any foreign country even combined. Fake news is the capital that is enemy of the people, which has been wiped wow. over 100,000 times. So what he's basically saying is that rather than saying, Reporters have a role. I don't always like what they say. I don't always like their take on what they're saying. But their role is sacrosanct under the US Constitution, which has been the position of presidents from time immemorial, right back to the revolutionary uh, presidents at the time of independence. He's saying they are the enemy of the people. Now, if you're saying that and you have armed, uniformed um, police and now National Guard, other, other troops that are out there, whose job is to protect America from enemies of the people. You can hardly be surprised with that kind of non-leadership or, or, or misguided leadership, to give it the most generous interpretation from the president. You can hardly be surprised that they will act poorly. And it's not just against the media. They had a curfew in Minneapolis. People were allowed to stay inside their houses. People were on their porches with their iPhones and their other cameras filming as, the, as these uh, militarized forces went through. And you can clearly hear on them the order going, light them up, which is a, a military expression meaning open fire and people being shot with projectiles, not hard metal bullets, but shot with projectiles on the porches of their own homes. Well, how in any way, shape or form is that, how on earth is that justified on their porches? their homes during a curfew and while compliant and compliant with the curfew because you're allowed to be on your porch you're not allowed on the streets they weren't on the streets there was no previous warning and they were filming which in itself is an act of of a freedom of activity under the um uh, under under the constitution it's funny will smith the actor and comedian says there is not more racism his line was racism is not getting worse racism is just being filmed and it's quite a chilling concept that what they're basically the argument is is there's nothing new here it's just that people are seeing it for the first time because everyone's got Ooh. these phones in their hands and uh, you know the the scenes there are disturbing america will patch itself up um what the implications are for the united states election six months away for a presidential election it'd be impossible to tell because so much is happening so fast these days. But uh, what a decision that is for the American voter. Yeah. Up. Well, I know we've got to take a break Hugh, but wow, just, I don't know. My mother was American uh, and a proud American uh, with a very thick American accent. Uh, but if she was still alive, she would be utterly, utterly shattered with what she's seen. A lot of Americans, I think, are. let's take a quick break. We'll talk some domestic politics in just a moment. Stay with us. 10 Speaks' latest podcast, 10 News First Person, will bring you amazing stories from all over the country, stories that matter from journalists with passion. I'm Meralda Jacobs, and I'm proud to present these stories to you. You can find 10 News First Person on the 10 Speaks page, on 10 Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to episode 56 of The Professor and the Hacker. We're feeling a little bit shattered, I suppose, by the scenes that we've seen coming in from the United States. But let's shift our focus a little bit more domestically, um, PVO. Uh, of the things that have changed, of the, of the news events that have happened, uh, developments in robo-debt on a Friday afternoon. Mm. Uh, we'll get to what robo-debt is. But let's just for the moment, just call it really bad news for the government, an appalling act. We'll get to the details. Let's now talk about how we learned about it once again at the dump the trash hour of Friday afternoon. Talk us through how RoboDebt and the new bad news is being managed as a piece of political communication. Okay, well, this is a deliberate strategy by the government, and they're not alone but they're pretty flagrant about it, dropping bad news on a Friday afternoon. It's two Fridays in a row that they've done it. Now, why do, why do they do it? They do it late on a Friday so that it either doesn't get in to the nightly news on the Friday night, or even if it does, they hope to reduce its significance. And even if they don't reduce its significance, we know that Friday night news viewing is the lowest news viewing throughout the week. Sunday's the highest, I think. Friday's the lowest. So, that's one upside. Another upside for dropping bad news uh, when they bring out the trash late on a Friday is that with productions of newspapers, particularly these days, it's hard to get big coverage in the Saturday paper at such late notice because Saturday newsprint is a much more sizable paper. It's a weekly process to put out a weekend Saturday paper rather than just a daily paper. So it gets less coverage. And that was the case across the newspapers on Saturday. It got far less coverage because it came in as late as it did on a Friday. It also means that it doesn't get the big coverage in the Sunday hit that it could get if you dropped it on a Saturday, for example. So because it's, it's a day old, by the it's time old news. over a day old. Yep. So the Sundays don't splash with it either. And it means come the start of the new working week, in theory, at least the issue should be gone from the agenda. That's the strategy. Now, as I say, all sorts of politics have done it to some extent, but it's become pretty flagrant because the previous Friday, they tried to take out the trash with their $60 billion black hole when it came to JobKeeper uh, in terms of the debacle and the bungle of the funding. Obviously, the strategy didn't work because it became a story for the entire rest of the week. The strategy shouldn't work either with RoboDebt. I'm waiting to see what they do ahead of the long weekend in some parts of the country coming up next week uh, when they take out the trash on a Friday. Or will they be at least show some shame and not do so? But it's a deliberate strategy. You know, listeners need to know that. And they need to know that the government is trying to hide from view bad news. Now, politically, I guess, you know, if you're a politician, I get it. You know, you try to amplify the good and um, you know, remove from view the bad to some extent. But it is a tactic. It is a marketing ploy and it deserves to be called out. And they've done it. And this is where maybe, Hugh, you can give us a bit of a summary uh, of RoboDebt because I want to have a rant about it. Uh, it wouldn't be a podcast without a rant. But the 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 choice of this particular policy script to be one that they try to de-amplify uh, and remove from view, I find even more shameful because of how much it has affected and hurt so many hundreds of thousands of Australians and the most vulnerable of the hundreds and thousands of Australians at that. So what we know from RoboDebt was uh, all those points being well made and thank you for making them. And it is true. It is every journo knows it's an, that, that essentially you've got to be alert on a Friday afternoon because the biggest story of the week is getting dumped there so that they don't get looked at. And of course, the most classic example of this was in the Blair uh, regime in uh, Britain. 
Oh, the yes, I know where you're going. Of <laughs> September 11, when, when the Twin Towers were collapsing and people were leaping rather than burning to death from the buildings and the whole world is agog at this appalling act that's going on. And Mimo goes around between the, uh, uh, the, from the, uh, a senior press secretary in the Blair government to the ministerial press secretaries, hey, if you've got any bad news, dump it now knowing that no one's going to pay the sheer cynicism of it, but that cynicism runs through things. So RoboDebt was, uh, is, is, is a sort of one phrase that catches an attempt that has been made. And Labour was trying to do this as well, this business of data matching when it was in there, to try to figure out when people are on welfare, how you um, check uh, people's various uh, information which the government has access to, to, to make sure that welfare is not being overspent, that it's not being defrauded and so on. It got elevated under Turnbull with Scott Morrison as the treasurer going into the 2016 election uh, as being this uh, great policy in which they were going to use, you know, they didn't spell it out in great detail, but basically use new algorithms uh, in order to claw back overspends in the welfare budget. Now, the algorithm itself use a whole process of averaging out incomes and so on. The consequence of it was, is that people were starting to be hit by claims for in many cases, thousands of dollars, which were uh, debts that they were told they had to pay back into welfare. Now, people didn't know where these came from. And if they tried to find out uh, what was going on, they got the sort of talk to the hand thing from the government, because very often the people on call centers had no idea. Um, mm. and, in, and in many cases, the argument that was made was, well, okay, we understand that you want to dispute this debt, um, but you have to pay it first. And then we'll go through a dis disputation process um, to look at the merits of it. People in many cases couldn't pay for it. And because there were so many ways in which people get caught up in this. There is no one single example of what was going on. But an example might be, for example, that if someone is uh, on low income and for most of a 12-month period remains on that very low income, and then say they might change their circumstance during that time, they're getting access to, you know, maybe mm. childcare subsidy, family tax benefits, they could be on welfare of various forms, um, including health cards and so on. And then maybe they're able to get some form of employment or some such, which lifts them above a pay threshold that they can then be stung for, um, on an averaging system, stung for debts, uh, from the time, stung for welfare, a clawback of welfare, from times when they were without question the recipients of welfare for all the reasons why that welfare exists. Now, the, the, the key thing to it was that ultimately there was a grassroots campaign against this. People were empowered to speak up about it. Um, eventually, it went to the High Court. The High Court found that this process of averaging was, um, uh, was unlawful. And so the, the government uh, has, under the bland title on the Friday afternoon, changes to the income compliance program, delivers the news that to nearly half a million Australians, think of that number, 470,000 Australians, that there will be returned the money that was taken uh, from them. And Nearly three quarters of a billion dollars. $721 million. And that is what the government is willing to fess up to. Now, it's not the end of it because there's still a class action going. It will run to billions of dollars by the time the class action is done, one presumes, because there is now a whole bunch of compensation claims 
for the damage mm. that was done. There are claims of 2,000 suicides linked to this, probably inflated. It's hard to, hard to say what are all the component parts that might lead someone to a suicide. Uh, the lifeline number, uh, I think, is 13, 11, 14. 13, oh, I'll get it at the end. I think, I think but, that's right. I think that's right. Um, if you're listening to this. But without question, this is a scandal that on a whole order of business is worse by far than the pink bats uh, scheme that the Rudd government instituted. And the pink bat scheme was about giving money out for one thing. Four people died as a consequence. So Royal commissions uh, ordered into it. Once the coalition got into office, it was held up as the worst example of policy failure, etc. This dwarfs by All orders right. of business, the appalling quality of that. All right, Hugh, now, in the most respectful of ways, out of the way, my turn. I am disgusted by both what has happened here and how it has been handled in the aftermath of the reality of the exposing of what has happened here by the government. You said it, and I couldn't agree more. This is so much worse than pink bats, but I will get to that specifically. In a nutshell, bottom line, doesn't matter what your partisan stripes are, the High Court of Australia ruled robo-debt as it was applied to the most vulnerable people in our community, illegal, and the government was advised pre this pandemic that it should pay that money back. Keep that in mind, pre this pandemic, but rather than do it, people, the most vulnerable, just shy of half a million people owe just shy of three quarters of a billion dollars in legitimate refunds for the government having illegally hit them up with robo-debt, not having received legal advice that it might be illegal, by the way. They received legal advice about how it complied, not about whether it was actually a scheme that could in fact be illegal. They, they are tricky with their words when they say we received legal advice. That was provided to them in February. People are already going through incredible mental anguish, dealing with losses of income, jobs, uncertainty, health concerns, family, loved ones through this pandemic. It was not announced when they were advised to relieve these people and pay it back then. It was announced now. And the sum, the quota, quantum that we're talking about is absolutely huge. And then... They won't even apologise now because of the class action afoot. So they refuse to even say sorry about it after having dragged their feet and having put in place something that was illegal. And nearly half a million people were left with the kind of mental anguish that unquestionably played at least some role in what we are led to believe are thousands of people who fall into this category having committed suicide and this government has the temerity to have a royal commission over pink bats where we are talking, albeit tragically, about a handful of deaths attached to that botch scheme. This botch scheme, we've had no minister apologise. We've had no minister resign. The prime minister didn't even have the guts to discuss this on Friday afternoon when he had his discussion about changing COAG to the national cabinet, which reminds me of when Kentucky Fried Chicken decided to call itself KFC. It's largely a marketing change, other than the fact that there is one significant change, which is that the, the protection of cabinet 
around secrecy now applies to National Cabinet, which didn't previously with COAG. He has that press conference. Internally, the word was given that these guys were allowed to get up, the Minister Stuart Robert, and make his announcement around robo-debt as long as it was after the Prime Minister had finished his presser. Why? Because he did not want a question on it when he had a platform to have to answer it. What a disgraceful, despicable display of public policy this whole thing has been. I've been disgusted by sports rorts. I've been disgusted by all manner of things, but I have never been more disgusted than I have been in this example. And let's just hope that the government learns something out of this disgrace because they were trying to patch up their dodgy surplus attempt, having made the promise, by hitting up people around robo-debt and clawing all this money, most vulnerable people. Imagine being in that situation. These aren't people, Hugh, that have access to lawyers to be able to fight things. As you mentioned, they have to pay it up and then maybe dispute it. A lot of people tried to scrounge that together when they barely had two cents to rub together in the first place to try to pay the debt for fear of the big weight of the government coming down on them. To say this is horrible is to completely underestimate the scale of the disgrace. Also, to put it in the lap of Scott Morrison, uh, he did find time to tweet out that he'd made vegetable samosas. He famously uh, uh, fancies himself as a curry cook, scomosas, as he called them. So we did get the benefit of the Prime Minister's communications over the weekend in which he's talking about cooking Indian food at home. No personal addressing of this scandal, despite the fact that he was the treasurer who made a feature of it in the budget uh, when it was being introduced in the first place. This isn't something And Social Security Minister him. before that too, Hugh, let's not forget. Uh, when this stuff was in the pipe works, he was Social Security Minister. And then by the time it actually, as you say, uh, went in, he was, uh, he was treasurer. Interesting. We're almost out of time, but there is something that I, I think this is a case where, to a large degree, the media didn't make enough of this at the time. That's mea mm. culpa. Um, hopefully, despite and, and, and perhaps because of their attempts to make so little of it now to cover it all up, uh, we need to make sure that we keep uh, tightly on this. But I think we're out of time. Um, plenty of reason for, for anger. Uh, before we go, I should note that uh, this podcast, and if you're a loyal listener, thank you so much for being with us. We have a new 10 Speaks podcast coming. It's called 10 News First Person, uh, in which reporters at the uh, 10 Network uh, bring some of their own stories that have moved them and uh, with insights into people across the country. Uh, Kimberly Pratt, uh, one of the 10 News First reporters who cover the bushfires, uh, returns to a community that, um, and particularly a firefighting crew and and delivers their extraordinary stories and what has happened since uh, that is uh, going to open up the 10 News First 10 News First Person podcast coming and we hope you'll join us for that. PVO? Absolutely. Pleasure as always. Thanks you. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. Looking for your next favourite podcast? Why don't you head over to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. I talk to all kinds of amazing women who are making a difference. 
Good women, great chat.